Schoolboys as young as 10 were involved in a massive homosexual child vice ring, a court was told yesterday. Police investigating a child sex ring in Southend have uncovered a link to a notorious London paedophile gang. Essex local newspaper The Yellow Advertiser's tenacity yielded some astonishing results. Essex police have announced a review of the facts of the case and they're appealing for victims to come forward. In spring 2018, I received a tip-off. Dennis King, the ringleader of the Shubury paedophile gang, now in his 80s, was awaiting trial in Peterborough on multiple counts of procuring sex from an underage boy. He was due to stand trial with a co-defendant of a similar age. The next hearing was scheduled for early August, but the date came and went with no sign of the hearing, so I contacted the Crown Prosecution Service to find out what was going on. They looked the case up and sent me a new listing in September, but only the co-defendant was listed. I replied immediately. Where was Dennis King? The CPS replied that he was too ill to stand trial. The next hearing in the case was scheduled for early September, but I couldn't attend because I was signed off work recovering from an operation. Robin Jamieson, the first whistleblower to contact me over the Shubury case, said he would attend and let me know what was said. He attended the hearing and called me in the afternoon after it had concluded. King wasn't there, but his co-defendant was. Uh, and I managed to talk to the barrister for the Crown Prosecution Service as he was leaving court. He knew I wanted to know the outcome. And they asked him out of curiosity if King had been let off because he was a police informant. And he said, no, it was nothing to do with that. He, he was unfit to stand trial on the grounds of physical health. He'd had two recent bouts of septicemia, and he said it wasn't taken lightly. The decision went right to the top. At the September hearing, the co-defendant's lawyers had put forward evidence that he too was unable to stand trial, in his case, because he was mentally impaired. They claimed he could not properly understand the charges and therefore could not assist his defence or receive a fair trial. A decision by the judge would be handed down in October, so Robin went back to court for that hearing and again called me on his way out. I met the co-defendant leaving the court, was waiting for a lift back home, and asked him if he could tell me anything about Mr King. And I was quite surprised. He was quite happy to chat about it, tell me what he knew, because King is no longer a friend. In fact, he says he hates King. Uh, King had turned up at his house one day, quite unexpectedly. Not sure why. Very friendly and chatty. Started chatting and got friendly and he started popping in for cups of tea in the chat. He'd met him a couple of times. He was like a mate to start with. And then in no time at all, he turned up bringing a boy with him. So his defence is that he knew nothing about it. He was just dragged into it. In effect, he was saying he was groomed to be a paedophile. And then he was dragged into it and King was entirely responsible the judge had found that the co-defendant was mentally impaired, but had bizarrely ruled that he was well enough to understand one charge, but not the other one. He would stand trial in December for procuring a child for sex, but would no longer stand trial for facilitating the sexual exploitation of a child by permitting Dennis King to use his home. But when the court list was published in December, the case was now listed for a mention 
instead of a trial. Once again, Robin attended to find out what was going on. Before it started, the barrister from the Crown Prosecution Service came over to talk to me. Then later on, I got the same information from the defence barrister. The same good news and bad news. They say King is now dead. He was physically ill. And there's no way they can do anything about his offences. And then the main witness was only really interested in King. He, he didn't see the point in giving evidence for prosecuting just the co-defendant who'd played quite a secondary role, as he saw it. And the Crown Prosecution Service couldn't compel the witness. They said it wasn't worth it. So they're just dropping the case. Within hours of receiving Robin's phone call, I'd placed an order for a copy of Dennis King's death certificate. But a few days later, I received a strange phone call from the register office, asking me questions about why I wanted a copy of Dennis King's death certificate. This had never happened to me before. A death certificate is a public record. Anybody is entitled to access it. It was between Christmas and New Year by the time the certificate arrived, I was already preparing the Yellow Advertiser's first Southend front page of 2019. I had found the document which confirmed, as several people involved in the case had suspected, that Dennis King had been a registered police informant. But the story was about to get so much worse. The certificate listed three causes of death. Pneumonia, human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV, and acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, or AIDS. Having evaded a potential life sentence in the Shubury case, and instead been gifted a sweetheart plea bargain, Dennis King had been set free to continue abusing children into his 80s, and he just died with HIV and AIDS. How long had he had it? How many children might he have infected? A few months before King's death, I had organised a reunion of some of the Shubury whistleblowers. It was the first time they'd all been together in almost 30 years. As we discussed the case and the story, Chris Hickey made an interesting comment. Take Dennis King and follow him from the day he was born, all the tragic things that presumably happened to him in his childhood, somewhere, you know, and then saying, look at the trail of devastation. And, uh, the, and, and along the way, and saying, and here he is at the age of 85 or whatever age he is now, still getting away with it. Now that King was dead, I was able to request information from public bodies, which was previously off-limits due to data protection laws. I wanted to try to do what Chris had suggested, to piece together as much of King's life story as I could. I knew he had multiple convictions before the Shubury case, but I didn't know any of the detail. And how many more convictions had there been afterwards? Just how much damage had his Shubury plea deal freed him to cause? But obtaining records proved harder than it should have been. Essex Police would ultimately take a year to comply with my request for some reports from Operation Sands. Under the Freedom of Information Act, all requests must be answered within a month, but they had taken 12. When they eventually did respond, they completely redacted 121 pages of a 123-page file. Parts of the surviving two pages were also redacted. I also had a curious exchange with Cambridgeshire police. After King had died, 
The CPS had suggested I contact the relevant police force to see if they had any information about his death. They didn't, because his death had been non-suspicious. But during our conversation, the press officer looked King up and told me they had four old press statements about him in their records, some of which had custody images attached, or mugshots, to you and I. So I filed a Freedom of Information request, asking for copies of the statements and the mugshots. But the force wrote back and claimed it didn't possess any statements or any mugshots, even after I named the press officer who told me that they did, and cited shorthand notes of the conversation. The National Police Chief's Council refused to release its records on King, claiming that publishing the data might upset his loved ones. In my opinion, this was a ridiculous reason to withhold information, and one that I had never heard before. This logic, if extrapolated, would effectively amount to a ban on almost all news reporting. But the NPCC stuck to its guns, and all of its files on Dennis King remain secret to this day. My attempts to obtain a copy of King's criminal record were also frustrated, by two government departments each insisting that the document belonged to the other, so it was the other's responsibility to release it. The Ministry of Justice kept referring me back to the Home Office, saying the police record was the property of the government department with responsibility for police. Although the MOJ held a copy, it said, it was not the owner of the data, and therefore could not release it. The Home Office, in turn, kept telling me this was nonsense. The document was now possessed by the MOJ, and thus the MOJ should release it to me. This was starting to look like a dead end too, until I got a helping hand, from beyond the grave, from Lenny Smith. I remembered that in 2017, Citizen journalist Martin Walkerdine had demanded the release of all the MOJ's files on Lenny Smith, who we heard about extensively in episode 7. The MOJ had complied and published more than a hundred pages, including not one, but two copies of Smith's police record, which had been handed to the MOJ on occasions when he had been sent to prison. So why were they refusing to do the same for Dennis King? I now had the MOJ in a catch-22 position. I filed a formal complaint about the government department with the Information Commissioner's Office. I said I had evidence of the MOJ releasing one deceased criminal's police printout, but withholding another's. The rules don't change depending on whose criminal record it is you're asking for, I said. Thus, the MOJ was legally required to be consistent in its responses. The MOJ was either wrong to release Lenny's record, or wrong to withhold King's. Whichever was correct, it had breached the rules on one occasion, and thus needed to be punished for that breach. My complaint filed. All I could do was wait. Despite the frustrating inability to obtain records, it felt like the investigation was on a roll. There was a wealth of information about King waiting to be unlocked. I'd tracked down the source who possessed the stack of hitherto lost documents, including the informant document. Victim 6 had completed his police interviews, so we assumed officers were investigating his case, and plaudits were rolling in for the Yellow Advertiser's work. We were shortlisted for a second time at the British Journalism Awards. Then, on May 17, 2019, we were nominated for four awards by the Society of Editors. The Yellow Advertiser. 
winner, impressing judges with the depth of investigative journalism displayed. Exactly one month after that award ceremony, I was informed that I no longer had a job. Towards the end of the second week of June 2019, I received a phone call from Victim 6, who'd just been informed that his case was being closed with no action against anybody. It was unclear how much effort had been put into investigating the identities of the abusers he'd only known by nicknames, but the one abuser he was able to positively identify, the police officer, was never even arrested or questioned. Victim 6 was angry about the way in which his case had been handled. He was talking about legal action and a formal complaint to the IOPC, the Independent Office for Police Conduct. I started working on a feature about Essex Police's treatment of Victim 6. A few days later, on Monday, June 17th, somebody from our company's head office visited the Yellow Advertiser and called all staff into one office, where they announced that the paper was not making enough money so it was being closed down. The intention was to make all staff redundant and immediately cease publication. The Southend paper which came out on Wednesday would be the last one ever printed. The deadline for that paper was Tuesday afternoon. They'd closed us down while the editor was on holiday, leaving me as acting editor, now trying to oversee production of the newspapers and tie up Victim 6's story at the same time. The next day, as I was frantically trying to turn around the Victim 6 feature in time for the South End deadline, an email popped into my inbox. It was from the Ministry of Justice. Dear Mr Thompson, in light of your complaint to the Information Commissioner's Office about us not disclosing Mr King's previous convictions to you, I can confirm that we have reassessed this matter and concluded that the previous convictions can be disclosed. I hope this is helpful to you, and I'm sorry that we did not disclose the attached to you before. I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. My tactic had worked. I now had King's police record. But I was also battling several newspaper deadlines, whilst also trying to write a feature about Victim 6. But on opening the file, it was clear that we needed to report on it before the paper closed. King's criminal history was so extensive that his list of aliases and convictions covered ten pages of A4, and it wasn't even up to date. This list had been handed to the MOJ five years before his death. We knew he'd been in trouble since then. Alias names Peter Clark, David Jensen, D.W. Playford. Summary of convictions. Offences, 71. Date first convicted, 16th of May 1946. Date last convicted, 14th of April 2013. Looking over Dennis King's extensive criminal history, it was hard to know which was more disturbing, the pre-Shubury or the post-Shubury portion. By the time of the 1989-90 Shubury case, Dennis King already had 20 sex offence convictions. The 1990 prosecution brought that total to 27. So by the time that we know for sure police were referring to him as a registered informant, he already had 27 sexual convictions. They could have been in no doubt about the sort of person they were dealing with, or the sort of offences he might commit 
as a result of any leniency he was shown. I immediately called Peter Saunders, the founder of the National Association for People Abused in Childhood. He'd been working with us on the Shubury story since 2015, and he was horrified by what I told him. Here's what he said to me at the time. Police must never again use the lives uh, and the safety of children as bartering chips to maintain the flow of information. What planet are these people on that they could even consider doing this? You couldn't make it up. It's like a real-life line of duty. It is outrageous that the police could even consider using a man with such an abhorrent background as any sort of informant. It's almost beyond belief. But there was more. After the 1990 plea deal, King had been released from jail in January 1992. By the summer of 1993, as we heard earlier in the series, he'd already been reported to the police for running another paedophile ring from Shubury, but a senior officer blocked the investigation, and King fled to Lincolnshire. After that, this document revealed, he had racked up another 13 sexual convictions between 1996 and 2013. At the time this copy of his criminal history had been printed out and given to the MOJ, he was on remand again, due to stand trial for further sexual offending in 2014. His crimes between 96 and 2013 included sexually assaulting children and taking pornographic photographs of them. If he hadn't been offered the Shubury sweetheart deal, he would almost certainly have been in prison at the time that he committed many, if not all, of these offences. The Shubury deal had freed him to destroy even more innocent young lives. His offending after the Shubury case had been brazen. On one occasion, when the police raided his home, they found he'd been sexually abusing boys, photographing the abuse, and then framing the photographs and using them to decorate the walls of his home like artworks. So depraved was Dennis King that the most recent conviction on this now out-of-date criminal record was for possessing photographs of intercourse with a corpse. This story would appear on the front page of the last ever Yellow Advertiser. It sparked a campaign to review and reform the rules surrounding the use of predatory paedophiles as police informants. Peter Saunders, who was an advisor to the National Abuse Inquiry, ICSA, asked it to investigate. Sam Steen, a QC from Michael Mansfield's chambers, who was also working for ICSA, also became aware of the story and raised it with the inquiry. With that, my work at the Yellow Advertiser was done but I wasn't quite ready to let go of the Shubury story. Over the following months, I would continue digging into Dennis King's past and find even more disturbing information. A merchant navy seaman who committed a serious offence against an eight-year-old busker schoolboy was jailed for six months at South End Quarter Sessions on Monday. Dennis King pleaded guilty to attempting to procure an act of gross indecency with a 15-year-old boy. He asked for acts of gross indecency against the boy and an unknown man to be taken into consideration. The recorder said he did not consider the offence on the indictment particularly serious, but the offence with the child was a different matter. The sentence was a warning. This was the first time Dennis King was convicted of a sexual offence, in late 1958. Commencing a pattern which would repeat itself throughout his criminal career, he had avoided prosecution for his most serious offending, 
sexually abusing an eight-year-old boy, and only been prosecuted for an offence involving a fifteen-year-old. I had spent several days back at Southend's public records archive, cross-referencing Dennis King's criminal history with old newspapers. Many of his crimes had been reported on, including his first. There was more, too. In early 1959, he appeared in court again, charged with a separate but related offence of receiving stolen goods from a child. Dennis King, 23, was fined £25 in order to pay costs. Mr. T. Jones said £35 was stolen from a bungalow in Thundersley Park Road, South Benfleet, and a 14-year-old boy appeared before the juvenile court. He said King told him he was due to appear before South End Court for another offence and expected to be fined. He had no idea where he would get the money for it. The boy broke into the bungalow and stole £35 and, the following day, gave £30 to King. So from the beginning of his criminal career... King's proclivity for grooming children for sex was intertwined with his talent for grooming them to commit crimes for him. Facing prosecution for sexually abusing a 15-year-old boy, King had dispatched a 14-year-old boy to steal the money to pay his court fees. £35 in 1959 was equivalent to more than £700 in today's currency. Was it any wonder that 30 years later, the charity workers had pegged him as a modern-day Fagin. There were further sex offences in 1959, 1963, and 1964, but it was in 1966 that he would receive his first and only significant sentence. Dennis King was jailed for seven years at South End Quarter Sessions on Friday for sexual offences against two boys. Sentencing him, the deputy recorder, Mr John Hazan, said, It's clear you are a menace to schoolboys and a danger to youths. You are a dangerous sexual pervert who stops at nothing to gratify your filthy lusts, procuring young people for money. The boys involved, aged 13 and 14, had to give evidence. The offences were committed in public toilets on South End Cliffs, near the band stage, and at his flat. It was near the band stage that King met the two boys, who had run away from their homes in Birmingham. More than any other... This case demonstrated the farce of the Shubury plea bargain, for offences against two boys, committed in the space of less than 24 hours, King was convicted of six offences and received a seven-year prison sentence. And yet, 25 years later, in the Shubury case, with many more convictions to his name, after being arrested for spending several years grooming dozens of children, and pimping them out to a network of paedophiles with the help of a violent accomplice, he had been convicted of just seven offences and received a sentence of just four years. I also found out more about the kind of offences that this sweetheart plea deal had freed him to commit. One article from the Peterborough Telegraph in the year 2000 reported the following. A paedophile who started committing sex offences more than 40 years ago has been sent back to jail for more indecent assaults. Now a judge has warned the 64-year-old that if he continues to seek sexual favours from children when he comes out later this year, he could end up spending the rest of his life in prison. Jailing him for 12 months, Judge Hugh Mayer QC told King, You could, on order by me, be returned to prison to serve up to 10 years, but I don't think that is going to do you any good. I don't know how you are going to stop yourself, but the solution lies with you to stop committing offences. Let off again. King had committed these offences weeks after being released from jail for other sexual offences. 
His criminal record demonstrated him to be a compulsive abuser of children who invariably got straight back to abusing children as soon as he was released from prison. Here was an opportunity to put him away for ten years, but the judge gave him twelve months. He would only serve five of them. In April 2013, here he was, back in the Peterborough Telegraph. A prolific sexual offender from March, with convictions dating back to the 1950s, has been jailed for taking, making and possessing indecent images of children. King received eight concurrent prison terms for the offences, the longest of which, given for the charge of taking indecent images of a child, was 12 months. Caroline Allison, in mitigation, stressed the boys photographed by King had given their consent ahead of the images being taken. Judge Nick Madge said the sentences would have been much longer if it had not been for your age. Another lenient sentence. The excuse this time? King's age. Fifteen months later, he would be caught propositioning a fourteen-year-old boy in the street. This was just the tip of the iceberg. King's extensive criminal history made for extremely grim reading not only because of the nature of his offending, but also the constant missed opportunities to remove him from circulation for prolonged periods of time. Wasted opportunities, which had condemned more and more children to a lifetime of trauma and misery. I found Ben, one of the Shubury victims we heard from in our earlier episodes, some months after King's criminal record was released. He'd never even known about the Shubury plea bargain, let alone about the offences King had committed before, or the offences it had freed him to commit elsewhere. This was Ben's reaction to what I told him. As ever, his words are being read by an actor to protect his anonymity. I just assumed he was put away for a long time, because that's what I was led to believe would happen. I can't believe it happened, but I sort of can. I just feel let down. And the fact that they let him out to continue doing it and potentially infect other people with HIV and AIDS, heads have got to roll. But heads have never rolled for what happened in Shubury. King and Tanner escaped with menial sentences. The other abusers, as far as we know, remain at large. Those who enabled all of this have faced no consequences. Those who handled the investigation, the prosecution, the plea bargain, have faced no consequences. Those who denied aftercare to the victims have faced no consequences. The Essex Police review into the handling of the Shubury case concluded there had been no wrongdoing. Documents continue to be suppressed. Victim 6's more recent case was plagued by delays and other issues, which are now the subject of a significant IOPC investigation. At the whistleblower's reunion, Chris Hickey made a depressing observation that what had happened in the Shubury case, whilst shocking, was far from unusual. And I think of the 30 or 40 or 50, an unknown number of children whose lives were absolutely ruined, three that we know are dead, the others who have been tortured for the rest of their lives, we look at and others, because of what happened, And it was essentially brushed under the carpet. Essentially, it was told to sit down and shut up. The kids were told to sit down and shut up. We were told to sit down and shut up. And here we are 30 years later. It's incredibly depressing to hear your stories 
of your current experience and having virtual flashbacks to the way the police are doing it. They're giving it to the stories wrong, you know, giving it to inexperienced, unqualified police officers who are shifted around and taken off the job. Uh, you know, a, an interested officer takes it, takes an interest and gets going, and she or he is immediately replaced with somebody who is going to be reliably told to kick it under the carpet. Now, whether I personally don't, I'm, I'm not a good one on on conspiracies. I'm not, but it's an institutional memory which kind of says we recognise that there's something dangerous going on here, and the institution knows enough. It's like institutional abuse knows enough to say, cuff it, damn it, shut shut that line of inquiry down. Between the release of episode seven and the recording of episode eight, I spoke to victim six, who sounded downbeat. The problem with this podcast, he said, is that there's nothing in it that would make anyone want to come forward. It almost sounds like a warning not to come forward because of what's happened to all the people who have. But the thing is, people like me and the other victims, we need people to come forward. Because the more people that come forward, the more likely it is that something will get done. So the podcast needs to end with some hope. It needs to end by encouraging people to come forward and tell what they know. Given all that I'd learned about the way the case was handled in the past, and all I'd seen of the way it had been handled more recently, it was hard to think of any hopeful spin I could put on the story. But then, after this episode had already been recorded and edited together for release, something shocking happened. Victim 6 finally received the investigator's report into his complaint to the Independent Office of Police Conduct. The investigator had upheld nine of his fifteen complaints and used their report to formally apologise to victim six for the way in which he'd been treated. The investigator said they'd never received an explanation as to why nobody had contacted victim six after I handed his letter to the police in October 2017. They then found there had been unacceptable delays in his ABE process. Here's an excerpt from the investigator's report. The investigating officer can see no justifiable reason why the first ABE did not take place until the 24th of July 2018, and the last was not concluded until the 21st of November. A seven-month delay for the first ABE, and then a further four months before the series are completed, is inexcusable. This is an unjustified amount of time, which the investigating officer believes may be due to the lack of a supervisor's footprint, and the investigation was allowed to slip. The investigator also couldn't understand why victim Six's case had been handed to an officer who had only just joined the child abuse investigation team. Here's another excerpt. There is no rationale as to why this was not allocated to a more experienced officer. This is clearly a complicated investigation. This is an organised abuse allegation involving multiple suspects and victims. The investigator's report revealed that victim Six's allegations of abuse by a former police officer had never been logged as a crime, and that lines of inquiry about that former officer were never followed up. The report also revealed that a year before victim Six first reported that alleged abuse, another male complainant had made similar allegations against the same former police officer. 
Victim 6's allegations against other abusers were also not investigated properly, the report found. Here's another excerpt. There are many inquiries that have not been completed. These inquiries may have uncovered new witnesses who may have been willing to give evidence to the police. His mother was not spoken to. His medical records were not obtained, despite having signed a consent form. Social service records were not obtained. He was not taken on a drive around to identify addresses. No attempts seem to have been made to locate the people he talks about in interview, whether they may be suspects, victims, or witnesses. As a result of these damning findings, three police officers involved in the case were to receive management action. Meanwhile, following a review of all of the investigative leads which had never been pursued, the report concluded by announcing that for the third time since 2016, the investigation into the Shubury paedophile ring was about to be reopened. When Robin Jamieson first approached me in 2015, the case was already more than 25 years old. Now, it's more than 30. Will the unanswered questions about the Shubury paedophile ring finally be answered? Or will the new investigation prove to be just another missed opportunity? Thank you for listening to this series of Unfinished. If you do have any information about this case and you wish to share it, I can be reached at charles.thompson at archant.co.uk. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unfinished. It was written by me, Charles Thompson, and edited by Tom Bristow. If you'd like to support our work, please visit presspatron.com forward slash unfinishedpodcast.html. All money raised will help fund the costs of future episodes. If you found this episode interesting, please leave us a review on your podcast provider or mention it to a friend. Thank you. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant.